Lone Star 187 is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. I would have lived a thousand years ago and gotten involved in some kind of thing where I killed they might have said well okay let's go to dinner now you know and let's you know it wouldn't have been a criminal activity necessarily that's sort of been developed in a, uh, as a proscribed behavior by society it's amoral because they don't want you going around killing people I was still angry and it was just bad luck for him Case File 04, Douglas Feldman. So Carrie, who the hell was that? That was Douglas Allen Feldman. He is also known as the Plano Terminator. So who was Mr. Feldman? Mr. Feldman was born in June of 1958. I don't really know where. I'm going to assume Richardson, Texas. I didn't find a whole lot of information on that on like where he was born and some other stuff. So he had a younger sister and older brother. So he was the middle child. His dad was overbearing and would pick on his older brother. And then his older brother would pick on him. And then he would pick on his on his little sister. So his dad was kind of a hard ass. Poor little sister that she got the brunt of all yeah. Of that. Yeah. And they don't really talk about the sister or brother at all. So this information I got from a documentary and his mom is speaking. She's incognito, so you don't really know who she is, what she looks like. But she talks about his childhood, that he'd get really angry really quickly. When he was 10, he broke into a house and stole a gun. And then they would get in arguments. She would tell him, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. And he would just say no, no, no. He got mad and pulled a butcher knife on her and then ran away, like left the house. I guess he was afraid he was going to do something bad. So she would just ask him to do basic stuff and he yeah, would get Yeah, just mad. normal 10, 11 year old stuff. Like maybe go clean your room or pick mm-hmm. up your dirty socks or... Make better grades. Make better grades. Make good decisions. And eat he, your dinner. And he, pulls out, and he pulls out a knife. So he gets a butcher knife and then every confrontation like that thereafter, he would run away. So I guess he did that because he was worried that he might hurt her. And I guess he didn't want to do that. I guess he had a little bit of a conscience in there. I don't know. So a little about him, as he got older, he studied at SMU, which is a very, you know, fancy college here in Dallas. Yeah, I did. I did read that he graduated magnum cum laude. And he was also on the dean's list almost every semester. So when he graduated, he became a financial analyst. He consulted for a hospital. He said that he worked really hard for a really long time. You know, he went through four years of college and... After that, worked hard for eight eight long years and then decided, you know what, I'm going to do some traveling. I'm tired of all this hard work. All these people are they have all this stuff and I don't have it. So I'm going to go and travel and try to feel better. But after a year, he didn't want to go back to work. But he had to because he didn't have enough money. Like all of his money is gone. Um, so he was sort of stuck. He must have made really good money to have been able to travel and be gone for an entire year without working. Well, and he was a financial analyst, so... It's not like he traveled to different places in America. No, like, he, he traveled out of the country to, South like, America. Peru and mm-hmm. all kinds of places. So it's not like he just spent a couple months in the mountains of Colorado. He traveled the world. Yeah. He didn't just go to, like, the Davis Mountains in West Texas. He was... He traveled abroad. So... Okay, so... Let's talk about what Mr. Feldman did. What do you think it was he did? He's called the Terminator, so. We obviously had to have a gun. Right. And he apparently had some kind of anger issues if you're willing to pull out a gun on your mom because she says go clean your room. Butcher knife. A butcher knife. Dang. Yeah. I don't know. All right. So let's get into it. Feldman was riding his motorcycle on the night of August the 24th. 1998. Okay, so here's Mr. Feldman. He's riding his motorcycle at night on the highway, which we see a lot of people do. So it's a Monday night. He's on his motorcycle on the highway, and an 18-wheeler suddenly passes him and then pulls into his lane and almost hits his left hand. Enraged, he decides, 
I'm just gonna take out my nine millimeter, shoot the back of this guy's trailer. While driving on the highway. Yeah, so he's driving and he's shooting. But then he gets even more pissed off because he's thinking this guy put my life in danger. He reloads his weapon. While on while driving the motorcycle yes, on the freeway. And these are witnesses. I mean, Highway 75 is a major highway in Dallas-Fort Worth. So it's a major highway and it's a Monday night. Like, I don't know the exact time frame, but it was dark. He emptied the gun in the trailer and then according to witnesses, reloaded his weapon, pulled alongside of the cab, and just starts shooting as he's driving. Motorcycle, highway, shooting. All the way to the front. He gets to the driver door and he just keeps shooting. And so obviously the truck driver saw nothing coming. No, he had no clue. He's just driving and I don't know that if he even knows that he got hit in the trailer. Like I don't know how you would know unless you actually see. But you know, there's that blind spot for truckers. So if he didn't see him back there, he might not have known until it was too late. Maybe he had a really bad case of the Mondays. Oh, it's a really severe case of the Mondays. If you like, think first it's your... Monday, and then I'm driving a motorcycle in Texas in August, and it's hot. It's hot as balls outside. And then this this jerk eighteen wheeler just cut me off. This is the worst Monday I ever had. Mm-hmm. And now I'm about to empty so my pistol. And thankfully, I just happened to have it. Like this was in '98, so I just happened to have it on me with extra rounds. He didn't pull over on the side of the highway, reload and get back on the highway. So he had to have reloaded one-handed. That's that's my point. Because I mean, at thing. least if you're if you're in a vehicle, some people can steer with their knees and use both hands. Right. But a motorcycle, you I mean, I don't know. I've never driven one, but I would you, think that it'd be kind of hard well, to it navigate. It was a Harley. There are there are pictures of it. I mean, it was it's a Harley, so um, it's I don't not, know how you could steer yeah. without your hands. It's amazing to me that he did this. I mean, that I'm not saying amazing. that was a good thing, but that part right there gets me the most is that he is so pissed off that he's driving down the highway, probably going at least 50. He's keeping up with his truck and he's reloading his weapon. He fired a total of 12 shots at the truck. He rode into a parking lot, then returned to the truck, seeing that Everett was dead, and then he began riding home. So he pulled over to make sure he was dead. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, all right, well. He's gone. I'm gonna my go Monday's home. real bad, so I'm going home. Mm-hmm. So he goes home. Meanwhile, David Waddell, who was the first responding officer, is dispatched to a shooting on 75. Thankfully, he was less than a block away, so he got up on the highway, sees an 18-wheeler stopped in the center lane, and traffic was stopped. He said when he walked up to check the driver's side of the truck, he could see bullet holes in the trailer start from the back all the way to the front and two or three bullet holes in the driver's door. He crawled into the truck and the truck driver was slumped over between the seats. He checked for a pulse and there was none. They talked to some of the witnesses and the witnesses said that it was a guy on the motorcycle that had done the shooting. And we have pictures of what the inside of the cab looked like with the glass and the blood in the middle of the Where he was... Where he was slumped over. And um, pictures of where the gunshots were on the truck and inside. Yes. Yes. I mean, this guy knows what he's doing when it comes to guns. So Apparently. And maybe he's played the scenario in his brain a hundred times. Who knows? That's where he wanted to shoot and that's what he did. About 45 minutes later, after he had shot and killed our first victim, who was named... Robert Stephen Everett. He was only 36 and he was actually from Mansfield, Missouri. And he was finishing up a load in Texas and he was going to be going back to Missouri, which is why he was headed north on 75. That makes he had sense. dropped his load and he was going back home. <laughs> um, he was, Shouldn't he be doing that at home? Never mind. Well, it depends on what kind of load he's dropping. Fair enough. Um, he did have a 12-year-old daughter named Emily. Um, I don't know if he was married or not, but he also had a brother, which I think we have a picture of. Mm-hmm. And then he was born September 24th of 1961. His daughter Emily was 12 whenever he was killed. Now she's married with children, but wishes her father could be around to see it. So he was 36 from Marshfield, Missouri. Poor Mr. Everett. So 45 minutes later and 11 miles from the scene of the original shooting... Feldman passed an Exxon station where our second victim, Nicholas Velasquez, who was an Exxon tanker truck driver, was refilling the station's gas supply. Feldman drove into the station and shot Mr. Velasquez twice in the back, killing him. Then he decided to return home. Since it happened in a gas station parking lot, it was on video, right? 
So they were able to examine the video and you can barely see someone on a motorcycle driving by. Me looking at it was hard to tell, like it tells a motorcycle, but you could see their arm was extended. So he didn't even, he just pulled in, shot, and then just kept right on going. You can see where he pulls in, you see mm -hmm. his motorcycle. Didn't they say that they were able to identify what kind of motorcycle it was based on the exhaust? Mm -hmm. And they were able to figure out unique. that it was a, a Harley mm -hmm. and they were able to find him. That's not how they found him, though. It wasn't the Harley. No, but they were able to determine what kind of motorcycle it right. was by, right. by that. Right. Having it on video and the people that were obviously in the parking lot of the Exxon and then the witnesses that were stopped in traffic on 75, they were able to somewhat identify the rider of the motorcycle and they got a composite of the suspect several days later, which we'll upload a picture of the composite that we found. The composite was released on TV to alert people and they started getting about 200 calls an hour, which lot. they split up between Dallas and Plano police departments. A neighbor called in and said they became very suspicious when their neighbor, who always had long hair and a beard, suddenly the day after the shooting, he cut his own hair and shaved his beard. And we're not saying that he went to a place and got his hair cut. He cut his own hair. And the witness said it looked terrible, like he had done a really bad job. The neighbor said it looked awful. So the police went and got him and they brought him in for an interview. And they were saying that he showed all of the characteristics of a guilty person, meaning he was nervous, he was avoiding issues, his body language, like he was turning his back towards the investigator and didn't want to look him in the eye. But the thing that spooked all of them was when the investigator, Keith Grissom, left the room, they figured Feldman didn't realize that the tape was still running. And so he starts cussing at himself. Oh my gosh. Like, idiot. What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And just like bitching himself out. At that point, the Plano Police Department knew that he was the guy. They just didn't have any evidence. They had no proof whatsoever. So what do they do? They start following him. Dallas Police Department had two officers following him for about a week. And they would follow him from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. because he did the killings at night. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have the manpower, they said at the time, to follow him 24 hours a day. But they knew he was on to them. Because here's what he would do. Get this. He would drive all the way to Fort Worth on his motorcycle, find the highest rise building with a parking garage, and drive up every single one and drive all the way down and then go home. Just because he knew that they were following him. <laughs> what a psycho. And he knew they would follow him because they were like, well, we can't bail because what if something happens, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So this is what he did. So I thought that was crazy. They're just lucky that they didn't cut him off and he didn't turn around and try and shoot him, you know? Yeah, or that he didn't see another trucker that sparked the rage again. So then a week later, Feldman shot another man, Antonio Vega, while Mr. Vega was standing outside of a jack-in-the-box restaurant on 635 in Coy. Mr. Vega was shot several times and one of the shots missed his heart by a quarter of an inch. Wow. But he survived. We have some pictures of Mr. Vega as well. A bystander noted Feldman's license plate number and relayed the information to the police. It was interesting that Feldman wasn't on his motorcycle this time he shot during the day. So more indicators that he knew he was being followed and he knew what time he was being followed and he was taking advantage of the fact that they didn't follow him from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So this and one happened in the daytime and he wasn't on his motorcycle. He was in his Land Rover, which we know are expensive. So he's got a Harley and a Land Rover. And did this person make him mad? He saw a truck. There was a truck close by and... Even though it didn't off. belong to this person didn't. on the phone? Nope. He was just at the this wrong This guy place. was just on the payphone, which we have a picture of that too. Which he is why I'm just... glad we all have cell phones now, which I guess are much safer. <laughs> so a bystander saw it and called the cops. They put out a broadcast to Plano and Richardson Police Department. So of course Plano, they know who this guy is already. And Richardson knows too because his mom and he live there. So they're already kind of familiar with the guy. So Richardson Police Department went to his apartment and then some went to his mom's house. One of them actually saw him coming home from the shooting because they were at his mom's. So they caught him there. I wonder what his reaction was when he pulled up to the house and he's like, you Shit. dumbass. <laughs> like I tried to tell you at the police you station. You think he's cussing himself out again? Like you were an idiot, but now you're a dumbass. You idiot. Now you. Why didn't I just go to the apartment instead of going to my mom's, right? Right. Well, no, there was there were cops there too, but he may not have known that. So when they walked up to his car, he raised his hand and told him, what you want is in the glove box. 
which is the gun that they found. As he got out of the car, he made sure that they saw his hands. He didn't want to get shot or anything like that, so he made sure that they knew he didn't have any guns in his hand. A 1995 Harley-Davidson was taken from his Richardson apartment, which obviously fit the description of the one that all of our witnesses saw. They apprehended him on September 5th of 98. The first shooting was on August 24th, so he's had, like, what, more than a week that he's gotten away with it. To run free and Mm -hmm. piss the cops off, waste their time following up and down parking garages. Right. What a jerk. So they recovered two firearms and 365 rounds of ammunition from his car. Testing one of the weapons and the shell casings found at the scene of the shootings of Mr. Everett and Velasquez and Vega confirmed that the weapon had been used in all three locations. It he, tied them all to it all It tied them all together. Yep. The same gun was used in all three shootings. So there's no doubt right now they have the wrong no guy. Doubt. And no now doubt. that the shell casings match, they have evidence against him, right? But there's more that he did that we're just now finding out about because now they've got shell casings to compare. So evidently he'd shot approximately nine shots into a VW dealership in Richardson, breaking windows and other items, but it didn't hurt anybody. Well, and what excuse would he have? I mean, there's no VW trucks. And obviously there wouldn't be a semi, unless there was a semi on the side of the road. Well, and this was even before... That semi cut him off? I think so, because it it doesn't have a specific date. They're already tying him to other outbursts just because he kept using the same gun, right? And then on the same day that the truck drivers were shot, a victim received two gunshot wounds in the parking lot of a restaurant in Dallas, Texas. So someone's like walking to their car and they're just shot twice and they don't know how. And it, it, it says on the same day. So this must have happened before he shot Mr. Everett. But maybe he got pissed off earlier in the day and shot this person. And It's so scary to yeah, just be walking just around and be shot on. and have no idea why you were shot. It's scary. Thank God that person's okay. And so, of course, they arrested him on the 5th and they charged him with capital murder and held him on $1 million bond. He did not respond to the Dallas Morning News request for an interview and his attorney declined to comment. His attorney's name, Jim Oatman. Mm-hmm. Not oatmeal, but oatman. Mm-hmm. Oatman. Like the Quaker oatman? Maybe. So the trial opens on Monday, August 23rd of 1999. So a year, almost to the day of the first shooting, yep. his trial starts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so his trial opened Monday, August 23rd of 1999, so it's a long time. Yeah, yeah, that's a long... So he's been in jail, obviously, this whole time Mm -hmm. because... There's no way you're getting out. Well, he didn't spend all his money. He got Land Rovers, got a motorcycle, he got all these guns, (laughs) and he hasn't worked in... Nope. Sometimes, so he he obviously didn't have Nobody's going to help his ass out. Nobody wants to help him with a million-dollar bond. So January, who was the prosecutor, tells the jurors that he has letters that will help the state prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that Feldman was guilty of capital murder. He wrote letters about two months prior to the hearing. So I guess he sent a letter to his defense attorney as well as the prosecutor that said, I am sending you this voluntary statement in order to disclose my role and guilt in the crimes with which I am currently charged. I am solely responsible for the shooting deaths of Mr. Robert Stephen Everett and Mr. Nicholas Velasquez. I have no valid excuse for my actions except that I was in a state of extreme emotional distress at the time. He wrote that he was involved in a traffic altercation with Everett. And he also wrote after the accident, I exploded in rage and I committed the murders outlined above. This quote may not be the letters that he wrote to prosecutor and his attorney. He wrote a lot of letters to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure which letter this is from, but he wrote, I find it quite pleasurable to kill those two men. If you are an angry person and someone provokes you to violence, it feels wonderful to cause their death and to watch their pain. So he uses the word pleasurable in killing these men. Yeah, it's gross. So he's in a, he's in a, what did he say? Traffic altercation Mm -hmm. with a truck driver that the truck driver probably had no idea he was part of because they say, if you can't see my mirrors, I can't see you. So most likely he never saw the motorcycle, in my opinion. Probably not until maybe he got close to the cab. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But he found pleasure. Like when I think of pleasure, I don't think of someone's pain. No. You know, I think of a brownie. (laughs) (laughs) chocolate you know i think a of nap other, yeah 
a monster energy drink. You know, a iced coffee. A really good rock concert. Like, those are pleasurable things. Right. Knowing that I caused someone's Wait, pain. But you're not psychopath. So yeah, it's hard I know to it's compare. Hard to, but it's just that it's, word. He could have said, I found it to be, you know. He doesn't care who he offends. I know. I know. I know. And it's just. He's the, very that word educated. That so. he, the word that he chose just sounds so. Moist. Oh, God. <laughs> Why'd you have to say the M word? It just. That just seems like the polar opposite of what yeah. you should feel if you take yeah. someone's life. Which obviously is because he's a psycho. We don't understand, yeah. but he doesn't. He doesn't give a shit. Oh wait! Speaking of that, did we decide he gets the award this time? He has to get the he's, the salty award. He's an asshole. He's a major asshole. He in some of the letters that he so I guess he had a girlfriend Elizabeth Garcia, mm-hmm. and he wrote that. to her while he was in jail. He told her about these fantasies that he had about walking around Dallas and shooting shopkeepers who had previously angered him. It's like if somebody pissed him off, it's like that person had a little case file in there in his head and he's like, all right, one day I'm going to come get you. Like he kept that anger blocked inside Mm -hmm. and he remembered every person that pissed him off or did him wrong. Yep. And he wrote that murder should not be illegal. And he compared killing humans with hunting game animals and that they were similar. If you want something dead and you go out into a forest and you think that you need to kill a deer, which he's not looking at killing animals for food, he's looking at it as in if you go into a forest and you say, I'm going to kill a deer today, and you go hunt that animal down and you kill him, it's no different than killing a human. That's not true. So, and that, that's what he tells so his, his girlfriend. So I'm sure she was like, okay, love you. Hugs. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> um, he stated, uh, and I quote, I have come to hate every single person on this planet with all my heart and soul. If I had a button, which would kill every single person on this planet, I would push it with no hesitation whatsoever. How scary is that? That there's this man out there that you don't even know him is wishing death on you. Is wishing he could kill you. On a Harley on 75. <laughs> like we're driving right past next to him. We have no idea. That if he yeah. if he could push a button and solely eliminate all mankind, he'd be Even cool with, with himself along with it. Mm, I don't know about or that. Or would he be like... He said every single person on this planet. So, so that I guess that would be him. And then he tried to say that they weren't written by him. However, his fingerprints... His signature, prison number, and his driver's license, his date of birth, his date and of his birth. driver's license. Number I read that too. Was on every single page of every that. single letter. I didn't write that. Like, okay, OJ, it's not your glove. I get it. <laughs> exactly. But there's like seven identifiers here, and you're I saying it wasn't. And you. how many people are going to have access to that prison number? I mean, I might be able to get. I mean, most of the other stuff about him I found on the internet, along with that. But jail bookend number? Come on. Testimony during the opening day were primarily motorists who witnessed the shooting on 75. David Dignan, mm-hmm. he testified that he was walking into the service station to buy snacks when he saw Feldman on the motorcycle pulling in when he shot Velasquez. Mm-hmm. And so he accounts his actions and he actually ran to Velasquez and took his shirt off and uses it as a pillow and he's trying to comfort him yeah. and tell him, like, you're going to pull through, you're going to be fine. And he's begging him to please get him a phone, because, you know, his cell phones weren't that popular yet, mm-hmm. um, so he can talk to his family. And as soon as the paramedics arrive, the paramedics are so great, and they get him on the line with his family. And just so happened, when he called his family, there happened to be a pastor at their house. What? At the time of the call, and the pastor basically prayed with him until... He got to the hospital, awesome. and then he he died I didn't in surgery. Know that. I didn't yeah, know that. so that the pastor prayed with him the whole way from the scene to the hospital, and then he went into surgery, which is where he passed away. So good job, Mister Degnan, being yes. a good Samaritan. Being a good citizen. Because some people aren't gonna do that. Because what if he comes back and shoots, or what if he doesn't want you to save him? You don't know. I mean, this this was in Dallas. Some in some areas right there, are not good. It could be gang related. He doesn't know. Yeah. And he's willing to help him. So I wish there were more people like that. Yeah. Okay, so then on Thursday, the prosecutors rest. The defense had its turn. I don't think that went very well for them because on the next day, (laughs) Feldman was convicted Thursday of capital murder. It says jurors took only 20 minutes to return the verdict, but he confessed in testimony to killing both of them. So no wonder it only took 20 minutes. He actually got on the stand and said, I did it. Well, and hearing letters that he wants everyone dead and... 
he compares hunting animals for food to killing humans. I mean, he doesn't need to be out with the general population. He needs to be away. He testified in court, I chased Mr. Everett down and I shot him to death. I felt like I needed to stop that man. I caught up with him and I fired directly into the cab. While being salty. He's (laughs) saltiest psychopath I've ever done any research on. Agreed. I'm sure there are more to come, but so far, this guy... Here he's talking about uh, Velasquez. I saw that man standing by that truck. I exploded in anger. I drove by and shot him. It was just acting out. I felt emotionally impeded and consumed by anger. Oh, and Feldman also admitted to shooting Vega because he thought the victim was a truck driver. So he did shoot him so just because he thought he that thought he, was... he was a truck driver. Dang. Talk about being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay, so then on September 8th, 1998, a Dallas County grand jury indicted Feldman for capital murder for the killings of Everett and Velasquez. So then they enter the punishment phase. They sentenced him to death by lethal injection. Bum, bum, bum. Shame on you. That's what happens. Yeah, you come to Texas, you kill us, we kill you back. It's an eye for a freaking eye here. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little peel back of the onion of how crazy he is. On January the 16th of 1978, so this would have been 20 years before he mm-hmm. became the Plano Terminator, an employee that he worked with named Jaden testified in court now, I guess, for his character to determine kind of what, witness. what happened. He stated that he saw Feldman hold a gun to the pharmacist, uh, Robert Scarborough, to his head and ordered him to get specific drugs for him. Brad Runnels testified that he watched Feldman point a gun at a driver who was blocking his escape from the robbery. So that's two people that he pulled a gun on in like five minutes. Um, And he served eight months of a two-year prison sentence in 1978 for that. So he had already been in prison for some time for pulling out guns on people. So why was he allowed, or how he was able to get a gun again? I guess he just, people are going to get guns. But obviously he wasn't someone who needed to have a gun. No. And then in December of 1996, so this would have been two years before Mm -hmm. everything happened, Feldman was driving his Land Rover out of a parking lot, and he hit a restored 1984 Pontiac Firebird. Ooh. Um, that was owned by... Frank the Tank? <laughs> oh, no, that was turned down. Um, by James Brantley. So whenever Brantley tried to catch up to Feldman to be like, you know, what the hell, you just hit my car, Feldman repeatedly slammed on his brakes trying to cause another collision. And at one point, Feldman stopped the vehicle and exited carrying a ball-peen hammer. He beat the windshield and the door with the hammer. And then this restored, beautiful car. He just destroyed it with his hammer. And then he reached in and hit Brantley three times. Then threatened to kill him. Then he went back to his Landover, drove in reverse onto the hood of the Firebird, and then drove away. Son of a bitch. So he's like rageaholic. He hit that car. He just kept progressing. His rages were more often. And they went zero to 60 really quickly. And, I mean, in 98, he carried a pistol with him. In 96, he carried a ball-peen hammer with him. Like, oh, just in case. I'm just going to carry this hammer in case somebody pisses me off. I one of those weapons in my car. And then he backs his car up onto the hood of the car and then drives off. Like, it never happened. Like it's Monster Jam or something. And then in May of 98, which would have been just a few months before the shooting, uh, Donna McElroy testified that she worked as a car hop at a hamburger restaurant in Dallas. And Feldman uh, apparently had ordered some food, so she comes up to bring in the food, and he had no money to pay her. So when she refused to give him his order... He's driving a Land Rover. After he told her I didn't have any money, and she's like, I'm not going to give you your order. Okay. He drove his car into her. Throwing her 20 feet and causing her to lose consciousness and teeth. So this is him getting tired of this. I can't travel anymore. I don't have any money. I don't have a job. I don't have any money. And now I can't even go to Sonic and buy myself dinner. So I'm just going to run over the waitress, the car hop, because she demanded money for the food that I'm getting. And threw her 20 feet. How did he not get arrested then? But even like this guy, James Branley, he didn't even do anything to him. He was just just there at the wrong time. It's like some people piss him off in the beginning of the day. And then as the day goes on, if you look like that person, then you're automatically guilty. Even though he provoked her. I mean, he's the one who called her to his car for food. Mm -hmm. And then when she's like, no, I'm not going to give it to you. He runs over her. So I guess just shows the escalation of how things got worse and worse. 
maybe there were some murders abroad. He traveled a lot. I really didn't do any research into that. I wonder if there were any rages where people just randomly got shot. Well, I wonder if maybe when he traveled, maybe he was able to murder. And then when he came back to the States, he wasn't able to murder because the rules aren't the same. And so he got here and that craving to kill, he wasn't able to do yet. And so it just built up and built up and built up until it took a truck driver cutting him off, which who knows if he ever even really did. He may have just saw the opportunity. Yeah. And just went with it. I mean, because he killed the truck driver and then went 11 miles and shot another person just just to shoot them because they were next to a truck. Because they set off a trigger. So it seems like he had a lot of triggers. And if you set one of them off, you may not live from it. Eight months before the truckers were killed, Feldman wrote his mother a letter. And in there, he said he felt distracted and unable to sleep as if he were being dared to escalate and engulfed in an unrealistic euphoria only to fall into a narcissistic depression. Wow. So that's, I know that he committed these murders and it's awful, but. Seems like he's asking for help. And he's like, yeah. And it's like his his mind. And it's like his mind is telling him in his dreams, you have this craving inside of you and it's like, it's going to get bad. And. Obviously, we've said this, I think, in every episode so far, that if you commit murder, obviously something's wrong. Mm -hmm. But it's sad whenever they know something's wrong, and either they don't get help or they can't get help, and they don't want to commit the crimes, or they don't want to do anything wrong to hurt anyone, but they have this thing going on. And it sounds like he's asking for help, but then he also makes it seem like he enjoys it, too, which is still a mental illness. There's still something there. He had received inpatient psychiatric treatment for drug abuse and paranoia in 1993, which would have been five years before Mm -hmm. everything happened. Um, And his family had urged him to seek help from mental health experts before the shootings. He also wrote, I do not believe I'm going to be okay. And in a December 1998 letter to his former girlfriend, he expressed anger over rude people and the abusive noise they cause. Yep. That is kind of an interesting statement because people that are rude do obviously cause abusive noise. I like how he put that. Well, he is highly educated. I mean, he he went to SMU and got his degree and all that stuff. So he, he knows what he's talking about. Okay. So road rage and how he got pissed off really quickly. And we drive this traffic every day. Mm -hmm. And I have been doing that for the last 15 years. I've always worked in Dallas and lived Plano, Allen, and Mesquite. So I've always, almost always had a long commute. So this highway I've driven every day and it gets frustrating, but I've never been, and I've flipped people off and I've cussed them out in my car looking straight, but I've never... I've never felt so mad that I feel like I need to even do anything violent at all. Like not even hit their car or whatever. I just have never been that way. But it does happen quite a bit. I don't know that there's been anything this year that I've heard of. I mean, but we're only in January. But I remember a couple of stories last year where like one guy's driving and then somebody shoots him and then his car just veers off the road and it's like gridlock. So it happens every day. So while I'm doing my research on this Feldman guy, his name comes up in an article that was published in the Austin newspaper in November 21st of 1999. And the headline reads, The Mean Streets Get Even Meaner. So the article was talking about road rage and how people get there. And in this article, they were giving examples of road rage, uh, one which included our gun-wielding psycho Feldman. They interviewed lots of people to create this article. And the people that were interviewed were psychologists, insurance researchers, traffic engineers, and other people that were interested in road rage and what causes it. So what they came up with was these are contributing factors. The first one was crowding, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. Too many people. The pressure of time. Everybody's trying to get somewhere, get to work on time, a meeting, get home, whatever. Oversized vehicles. Everybody has an SUV these days, right? Mm -hmm. Young drivers. Uh, And then this one, I put an explanation beside because when I first read it, I wasn't really sure exactly what they meant. But it says vigilante fury. 
And the explanation they gave on that one is vigilante fury is explained by road rage is a learned culture habit of retaliation when you feel like retaliating. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, It's a free choice that we exercise. Uh, And that was by Leon James, who is a psychologist who has written books on road rage and testified in Congress. The other one is called Jekyll and Hyde syndrome. Mild-mannered people can change when they get behind the wheel. Like you're a really nice person, you're really sweet, but when you get behind the wheel of your car, definitely not the same person, right? I think that's kind of how I am. Are you? I mean, I don't, I, I could never hurt. It's like I could never pull out a gun and shoot someone because they cut me off. But when I leave work every day and I'm going to pick the kids up from daycare, I am like get the hell out of my way like you see an uh, SUV that is trying to get somewhere like obviously it's a mom trying to go to daycare could you please just go like why do you have to take seven hours to turn just go like I have 30 minutes to get from my job to there before I have to pay a $25 late fee so but any other time I'm okay but if I have to like the through the triggers so it's the the I'm actually gonna put my voice in this one because every time she calls me leaving work I hear her horn (laughs) Every time, I, I don't I don't honk my horn a lot. I am a I'm a horn honker. She talks with it. I'm like, get out of the way, <laughs> me me me. You need to be careful because you may honk the wrong time and then you've got bullet holes in your car. Well, I gotta get the kids. So can what you am just I sp- leave work a little earlier? No, I can't. I know my. Dr. Savannah gets really mad at me because I'm. she thinks I'm a little too aggressive sometimes with people on the road because she will not do anything. She will just look straight and not even make eye contact. And I will honk or... I mean, I, I don't honk for unnecessary reasons. Like, whenever the light turns green, I count like one, two, three. Okay, it's time to go. It's been three seconds. Go. I don't like wait for it to turn green and immediately hit the horn. Yeah. But every single minute counts for me from 6 to 6.30, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Those three days count because if I'm one minute late, that's $25 and my hours are till six. So I don't have a choice. Yep. So it's, it's the time pressure. It's the time pressure and it's the, and because the, it's there's the so cost, many, it's costing thank you money. You California, bring all your people to Texas. And there's just so many damn people in, I mean, cause I have to go from Carrollton to Plano and it's only a 15 minute and with little to no traffic or light, mm-hmm. moderate traffic. That's the first It's like part. 15 to 20 minutes to get there. But at 6 o'clock, everybody's everywhere. Well, that covers two of them right there. Actually, three. Crowding, time pressure, and you have an SUV. Yep. See? And so I understand understand the road raging because I get pissed very quickly if I feel like somebody is in my way in the sense that I'm trying to get somewhere and you're making decisions that are keeping me from getting where I need to go. That will cost me money and time away from my kids. Right. And it's not like if you're going the speed limit or you're going a little bit over the speed limit, I'm fine with you. But if the speed limit's 45 and you're going 35 or you're going to turn and you don't put your blinker on and you're slowing, I don't know why you're hitting your brakes, then you turn like that pisses me off. Because if I knew you were going to turn, I'd have gone around you. I try to drive in the center lane because of that. I do too, but I'm I'm a weaver. I I weave. I know. To I've get had where to I need follow to you before. You're acting like I've never followed you or ridden you. haven't you. followed me at 6 o'clock on a Monday. No. Good point. I'm like Frogger. <laughs> okay, so we covered Jekyll and Hyde. And then the last one is called Childhood Lessons. And this I thought this was weird. It said, road rage is a habit acquired in childhood. Children are reared in a car culture that condones irate expressions as part of the normal wear and tear of driving. Once they enter a car, the children notice that all of a sudden the rules have changed. So to this your is... point, because like now, I've even your daughter has said in my car, get out of the way, idiots. <laughs> well, and I'm sorry, <laughs> who raised us? Ken Gathright, right? Uh-huh. Who was a truck driver. Yes, he and was. I've he had road rage bad. Yes, he was bad. So... I mean, not pull out a gun and no, shoot no, no, somebody no, no. bad. No, but, but he did not like incompetence, and he sure didn't like people being on their phones. Because no. even Jack, as a little not. boy, he'd be like, "Put your phone down, <laughs> put your phone down," because that's what Dad would do. And he would he would like get over on the like on the road titties and get next to them and be like, "Put your phone down." And you know, Mom's like, "Honey, quit, Stop. honey, quit, Stop. Get us killed. Oh Lord Jesus! Oh my God!" <laughs> And that's, so, I mean, I, we grew up with that. 
And so I feel like whenever we drive out of town, I'm never like that because we don't have a deadline to get to. We're not in a rush. We don't. The only factor that's there at that point is just I have an SUV, which is fine. It's great. I have third row seating. It's great. But so, but we could, you are potentially raising road ragers. Shit. So just be mindful when your little kids are in the car. I don't rage. paying attention to everything that you're doing. I don't feel like I'm as bad whenever they're in the car because I have them. Right. So I'm good. It's worse when I'm just trying to get them. That's right. the only time I feel like I'm really Although raging. I have heard Kelly say, get out of the way, idiot. <laughs> I do say that. <laughs> That's true. Okay. So I thought that was interesting. That, that is. It was an article and he was in it, of course. It didn't name any other people, but he interesting. was named in the article. The rage that put him behind bars did not subside once he was in jail. A planned interview with a reporter a few weeks before his execution was canceled after he ripped the telephone off the visiting cage wall. Damn. Yeah. That was the 136th violation put on his disciplinary record during this time. Prison officials declined to make him available for interviews after that. (laughs) You cannot see people after that. He ripped it off the cage wall. He ripped the telephone off the visiting cage wall. So a media blog wrote and requested him to correspond with them. There's a lot of letter writing back then. Like he, you were saying earlier that he wrote a letter to his mom. Mm-hmm. But they both lived in Richardson. So why did he have to write a letter? Why couldn't he just drive over there and go... Hey, mom, this is how I'm feeling. Maybe he just wasn't a very good communicator. Because he wrote, even before he was in jail, he wrote letters. Well, and I do have part of the letters that that the media had asked him to respond to. I'll put them up on on the page. But during one part, he's basically telling the media, okay, I'm answering your request or your plea for, um me to reach out to you so in exchange i would like sexy pictures of women i want you to post 25 or 30 websites of where death row inmates were on pen pal websites and he's like i'm on all of these i want you to post that and can you get me some kind of like some good snacks in here Snacks. so like could you basically make it worth it for me to write you these letters and in there he talks about how like he's accepted that he's gonna die and that he understands that even if president obama himself said i don't want him to die that it wouldn't be enough he would still be killed in in death row and then he has on the second or third page he at the bottom he has equations that he's made and it says stupid rash and thoughtlessness equals caught which equals executed and then he has smart cold-blooded and devious equals evade detection which equals go on living and he said that's the basic truth of it so i took from that that basically he's stupid Mm -hmm. because if he had been smart and cold-blooded which shooting someone the way he did all three times was cold-blooded running over a car hop is cold-blooded putting a gun to a pharmacist for drugs that all of that's Mm cold-blooded he's just Stupid and cold-blooded. So he's not... Well, I I don't even know that he's stupid. He's really, really smart. He just didn't care to try and get away with it. Because he's saying that if The only thing that he did to really try to evade was shave his beard and cut his hair. He didn't move. He didn't do anything. He didn't change his hair color. He didn't go through all that trouble. So he was kind of lazy. Like he, He didn't really go too far out of his way to not get caught. I mean, he knew that... They would probably go to his apartment or his mom's, but he went straight to his mom's. You know, when he shot Vega, he did use his Land Rover and go during the day. But that doesn't take a lot of effort. It's just change up your style a little bit. Well, and he calls Death Row Loser's Row because they obviously got caught. And he said, there are plenty of examples of people who get away with murder for years and years because they were devious, cold-blooded, sociopathic, and they covered their tracks well enough to avoid detection. People like John Gotti did. Mm-hmm. And so the death penalty, just like life, is not fair. So he describes him being on loser's row because had he been more cold-blooded and more deviant and smarter, he wouldn't have gotten caught and he would still be living and it wouldn't be a problem. And then he lists out all those websites and then he lists out all the <laughs> things that he wants in exchange and then his address if they could send stuff to him. He's like, I'll, I'll, be on, I'll write to you, but... Which I'm I don't get really, something in return. I, I don't, don't respect that. I don't understand these women that like fall in love with these it. men on death row. Like the recent guy that 
killed his wife in Colorado. Oh, like yeah. he's getting women like to put money on his books and propose to him. Like what could you pop? You're never going to see him. You're never going to have a relationship with him. And he's a murderer. Maybe they're in like a really bad marriage. And this is just a way of getting the attention that they need without the fear of getting caught or having but, anything like, what physical. What attention could they be getting? I don't know. I'm it's not like he can to, chat with them. To... Sounds like you've been in one. No. <laughs> are you on one of these pin pal websites? No, do I don't even know what they are. Do you have a confession? <laughs> no. I mean, I wouldn't judge you. I'd just be worried about you. No, I have no interest in dating prisoners. If you even call that dating, that's not dating. I, I just don't know how they... Like, what could you offer a death row inmate? Like, they're going to die. You're never going to have a life with them. You can put money on their books, but they're just living off yeah, your money. Like That's true. I'd what like could they be possibly? the type of women that do that. Is it a certain type of woman, or is it just all types? I don't know. Despacito. <laughs> that was a good one. Despacito. Now that's going to be stuck in my damn head. <laughs> Okay, so I have, I just have a little bit more here. I have his last words. I hereby declare Robert Stephen Everett and Nicholas Velasquez guilty of crimes against me, Douglas Allen Feldman. Either by fact or by proxy, I find them both guilty. I hereby sentence both of them to death, which I carried out in August of 1998. As of that time, the state of Texas has been holding me illegally in confinement and by force for 15 years. I hereby protest my pending execution and demand immediate relief. These were the last words of this ridiculous Plano Terminator. And you know, in the documentary, Mr. Velasquez's daughter states that her and her family didn't want to be part of the last words because they were worried about just this. Yes, I saw that video. About him saying something that they'd never be able to forget. And to hear that, like, I don't know what I would do. I think I'd want to come through the glass and choke him Mm -hmm. to say that my dad had to die because... Like what crime? What 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 crime? They didn't roll up to your house. No, they weren't on your private property or in your business. You, they were just doing their thing that they were being paid to do. They were working, mm-hmm. and you rolled up on them. So that's on you, Mister. I mean, at least Mister Everett, he has a f- whatever story saying that he cut him off and he was he threatened his life. Okay, I might be able to understand that. Not the shooting, but maybe you feeling like threatened. But what did Mr. Velasquez do? He was just working. I'd read that he was about to retire. Yeah. This was his last job. He was on his filling up to go. That was his last. On his way home to be with his grandkids and finish his life how he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. That's awful. And then how could he's holding me illegally in confinement? They, Please tell me what's illegal about putting you on death row for murdering in cold blood two people, not to mention all the other charges of your life. How is that illegal? He's an idiot. He doesn't know what illegal means, I don't think. He even says he's an idiot. So the last little bit I have is how he portrayed himself as being this strong person that wasn't afraid of anything. But they were saying that right before they gave him the injection that his right leg was shaking really, really bad. And they could see that he was very nervous and almost tearful and very emotional. Uh, Media witnesses wrote that after the injection was started, he appeared to attempt to resist the lethal drug. And then he was pronounced dead at 628 p.m. I don't know how long it took. Well, I find some, maybe this makes me a bad person, but... It makes me feel a little bit more at peace that he was a little fearful towards the end because he knew what was coming. Mr. Everett and Mr. Velasquez didn't know what was happening. So hopefully that means that they weren't scared, hopefully, because it hit them. Well, Mr. Velasquez obviously was because he he was scared on the way to the hospital. But I'm glad that he had to lay there and suffer for a little bit because... Maybe then he realized what he put his victims through. I don't think he was had the mental... He wasn't in a mental state to ever be remorseful for what he did. Not remorseful, but I hope that he was in a situation where he was scared, just like oh, his victims were. Yeah, yeah. Not that he would see it that way, yeah. but he would be scared. Obviously, he was shaking. He was nervous. So he was scared just like they were. Yeah. So he was in, he knew exactly what those victims felt, even if he didn't see it that way. Yeah. The last thing I have is that the prosecutor said that in the news stories, besides the Plano Terminator, Feldman was known as the road rage killer. But he said he wanted to make it known that Feldman's prior history and his time in prison proved that his aggression wasn't momentary. He didn't have road rage. He had life rage. Oh, that's very well said. Yeah, it is. 
And maybe. And he's, uh, January is in some of the photos that we have. He, because, you know, he wanted to have pictures of the victims with him during his opening statement in court so that the jurors got to see that these people had, they were real, they had a family. So we have, we'll have pictures up there of him holding photos of Mr. Everett and someone in his family and then Mr. Falasquez as well. So, so what do you think? Was this a good one? I mean, he's crazy. I mean, I stumbled upon this story on the Murderpedia wiki page. I I was just looking through them. And when I saw the Plano Terminator and how close it was to where we lived, I had to do it. And then, like I said, our dad was a truck driver. We drive this road every day. And even our mom, who's lived here for more than 20 years, didn't remember the story. So um, hopefully not everyone out there's heard it before. Or maybe some people remember it. I don't know. I will be more careful on the road. That's for sure. Yes. Check your temper. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would never hurt anyone like that. Well, but just be careful what you do because you may be the person that triggers somebody else to mm-hmm. go insane. And we don't want that. So. No. And I just I, everyone out there, just take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath and keep rolling. If you're listening and driving, just don't <laughs> cut the person off behind you. No cutting people off and, you know, just pull over and go to Starbucks. It'll be fine. Yeah. It does make me sad, though, that he obviously had mental problems his whole life and yeah. didn't get the help he needed. Because, unfortunately, two people lost their lives. One person was shot. Mm-hmm. Another person was robbed. A girl was run over. A man lost his beautiful 1984 Pontiac Firebird that was well, fully what about, restored. Like, what about all the people that were stuck in traffic that witnessed this? Or what about the guy that was at the convenience store and witnessed that? You weren't a victim in that you were physically harmed but the emotional trauma that that has to bring like I've never I'm in traffic all the time and I've seen wrecks but I've never like seen that kind of thing happen Mm, and I don't know what I would do so it is about the victims and their families and and what is left behind but also all the people that had to witness that and you know the poor car hop girl and the people that worked at the VW dealership and they're thinking what the hell Somebody just comes up here shooting and then just keeps rolling. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I just wish that his mental illness would have been figured out early yeah, enough. It sounded like at one point he was asking for help. Yeah. His mom should have tried to help him more. Yeah. So Or his girlfriend. You know, I mean she someone had to do something for him. That completes the Plano Terminator. You know, I feel like I was exceedingly sparing. As I had 400 rounds of ammunition, I could have easily done a Benbrook. I could have easily shot 30 or 40 people before they caught me. Case File 04, Douglas Feldman, closed.